sexism is not yeah. taken seriously in the football community. An article doing the rounds. We always talk about this stuff when it comes up at other clubs, and and this time it's come up squarely in the Manchester United remit. As the I think from the angle of it, uh, it's over the, the Stretford end, over by the tunnel. Um, as the Chelsea physio is walking down towards the tunnel, it might be the other end. It might be the singing section. Um, and as she's walking down, the crowd starts singing hilarious lad banter at her, and then some guy just shouts really obnoxious sexist idiocy at her cue laughter around him it's it's properly stomach churningly sickening when you say that stuff if you watch it with any kind of genuine human compassion yeah no i i agree with you of course uh, a number of articles in the bbc and other outlets coincide with international women's day um, which which also gave the impression that uh, somehow these media outlets uh, didn't give a damn about this stuff before because, of course, I've been going to football matches since I was wee and that kind of language has existed since then and it seems that the media or the football authorities and clubs themselves didn't give a damn before now, which is uh, rather a pity. But, um, yeah, uh, not, not the only club to direct abuse at um, uh, the Chelsea Physio, of course, nor to engage in... Uh, abuse of assistant referees and other women uh, in the game or in the crowd and so on. It's endemic in the sport and none of that's an excuse, of course. It's um, it's all just pretty miserable. Football's definitely changed you know, since I started going to football. Many, many more women go to the ground. The atmospheres have changed in the ground, of course. Um, I think the facilities make it much more family-friendly uh, and so on. So, you know, I, I would say there's a definite improvement, much as there's been improvement in uh, crowds attitude to race over the years and uh, seemingly even sexual orientation given that uh, some players have come out in recent times and received good support and misogyny is uh, another one of those pillars that football has to tackle and has not been very good at doing it yeah i mean there, there's just i don't know you say it's got better maybe it's got better but the number of women i was talking to after that story broke saying this happens if not every time we go to the game, then most times we go to the game. A couple of Rankcast listeners talking about that. So I'm not sure exactly how much better it's got. And of course, the reaction to this in social media, but I think that's probably reflective of some broader attitudes or at least um, has been an outlet for some real viciousness. When women talk about this stuff, they just get bombarded with rape threats. This, yeah. Is, yeah, yeah. this is what happens, and, and it doesn't happen if you're a man. Uh, you can complain about things happening to you if you're a man, can't if you're a woman. If you're a rank cast listener and you've ever sent a woman a rape threat on Twitter, just stop listening, please. You know, And even better, think about how what you're doing is really out of order. I mean, we've got a pretty... Decent listenership. Sadly, there's probably people out there that have done this in an unthinking way or made jokes or used rape as a kind of uh, pseudonym for destroy in, you know, when they're describing something that happened on a football pitch or whatever. You know, just think about your actions. Think about how you perceive people of different genders and whether you genuinely have a vision of equality for people or not. This is the uh, the only thing we can all do as individuals about these situations. When you're in that moment and there's somebody kicking off and shouting the odds, it's probably not so easy to stand up to that person and say, hey, what you're saying is unacceptable because it's not nice to be punched in the face. 
but just that doesn't mean you have to participate in it, you know? So anyway. Yeah. Dareth and the sermon. Yeah, yeah. All fair enough. And um, United supporters have their part to play, uh, as do many others. Um, I don't think much attention has been paid in the world of football, and I suspect that uh, not much will be paid in the weeks and months and years to come either, uh, because, you know, the focus was around this particular event. Um, my new look, saying that, I've been to actually, actually been to several women's football games uh, with my daughter. Um, who's enjoyed it, and there's always a great atmosphere. Rather as you'd expect. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, normally I, like, uh, apologise when I give a sermon, but I'm just not going to apologise for this one because I feel like it's a message that doesn't get heard enough in football because, like, football is so ridiculously male-dominated and it's male voices that get heard. I mean, this podcast, you know, that's a a classic example. Uh, But, yeah, anyway. Should we talk about actual kicking of footballs? That's the good bit, right? Well, or isn't <laughs> as the case may be. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, we can we can talk about a victory to start with. United went away to Newcastle and won. Uh, not a great record on the road this season, United, but a last minute uh, Ashley Young goal. Is is he United's best player now? <laughs> What's going on? I mean, he's at least United's second best player, isn't he? He's our best outfield player. Although, all right, then here goes credit to Wayne Rooney. <laughs> He deserves it, to be fair. Uh, the, the harrying was just classic wazza, wasn't it? If you want someone to harry someone else, stick Wayne Rooney on the on the task. Um, and some pretty shocking defending from Newcastle. It was a pretty fortunate victory, given that Chris Morling definitely, definitely should have had a, a penalty and, and given against him. And also, Newcastle missed a couple of absolutely guilt-edged chances, I thought, during that game. Yeah. I mean, if United hadn't scored that last-minute goal and it was a draw, I think uh, the narrative around this would be very different, wouldn't it? We'd be saying it was another pretty average performance. Um, th- there were good bits in it. Uh, United did play decent football at points. There was actually a nice balance to the side, uh, you know, generally speaking. Uh, Smalling and Evans weren't too bad at the back, for the most part. Um, Chuckle Brothers have not been great this season, have they? But did all right. Uh, Blint and Herrera made a half-decent pairing in central midfield. So it wasn't the worst United performance on the road by any means. And But you wouldn't say that uh, United definitely deserved the victory either. But but there it is. It came, 89th and, uh, and change. And uh, just an, another piece of evidence that Ashley Young is flourishing under Van Hull. Yeah, and I mean, all joking aside, that last-minute winner was incredibly important. Incredibly important. You look at our fixture list and the fact that everyone else won that day, well, we'd already not be fourth outright. I'm not sure what the goal difference is between us and Liverpool, but we'd be on the same number of points if we'd drawn that game. And, yeah, so it was was just completely and utterly vital that 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 goal went in and you know I think it would be harsh to say we didn't deserve to win the game at all but it wasn't a foregone conclusion that we'd win the game based on the performance Uh, Di Maria substituted looked very 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 unhappy about it he did um, not the finest performance from Di Maria though let's be honest there have been very few of them overall though United's passion and play was just particularly predictable wasn't it so Awful lot of possession in the central part of midfield again, and yeah, more than almost double the number of touches that the Newcastle side United had. And a lot of that is just the ball going sideways, uh, retention of possession, wearing down the opposition. And it appears to be a, an approach that just doesn't suit 
Di Maria's sort of cut and thrust. I also wonder whether this move in the last few games to kind of push him out to wider areas and distinctly wide area, isn't it? Uh, whether that's suiting him or not. I mean, there's been a continual debate this season. Is he a winger? Does he play at number 10? Does he play at striker? Or is he a box-to-box central midfielder? And Van Gaal is still tinkering, trying to find the best for Di Maria and the best for United overall. You know, And it just feels like never quite has the balance that clicks, does he? He's, he's striving to find that kind of balance between defence an attack and uh, tinkering constantly to get it and hasn't quite found it. And Di Maria is either the victim of that or he's, uh, you know, he's also partially um, a failure of his own making as well because his uh, attitude doesn't feel great at the moment. No, and I think that's a difficult one to, to gauge a player's attitude because you can't say he's not trying because every time he gets the ball, he's trying to do something. But he just does look a bit surly and then his attitude reached its apotheosis in the Arsenal game, didn't it? Which will we'll get to um, of course a big talking point from that game the Chris Morning thing in the Newcastle game that was definitely a penalty right that was uh, yeah I think uh, there's only two people who didn't think that was a penalty Chris Morning and the, the referee I think Chris Morning probably did think it was a penalty and all it's worth pointing out that United's spirit is once again shown to be better than it was at any point under David Moyes like been a lot of last minute equalisers this season and then finally a last minute winner and it's it's a shame that it's needed to be left so late and it's a shame that everything is so just not quite working properly but still you're just never going to convince me not that you're trying to Ed but you know people are that there isn't something about this team that's on its way somewhere that's better than what we saw last season I don't know yeah well, so when you made a comparison with last season yeah fair enough couldn't be much worse than that uh, I think my problem is um, I, I maybe I get what his philosophy is retention of the ball and half decent football wear the opposition down and then strike in some way and he's, he's compromising lots of things all the time because he feels there are weaknesses in the squad we've we've talked about this many times I can't work out what the strategy is so I have to say and uh, anyone who tells me that there's a it's that's obvious and we know exactly where we're heading I think is is lying really because the 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 evidence is just not in front of us might be behind us Uh, it might be many years behind us and and we can base uh, some thought on that of course but not really what's on the pitch at all because it changes from week to week. I mean, he's played dozens of systems this season, you know, nuances, of course, but um, uh, so many and it changes so often. We're now playing a 4 2 3 1, or, or do you call it a 4 1 4 1? Either way, it's some kind of combination of that. Has three at the back gone? Maybe the diamond appears to have gone. 4 4 2 went a long time ago onto another system. He's going to try this for a few games until it all goes wrong. We'll try something else, I suppose. Um, but it doesn't mean it doesn't feel that there's a, a real plan. Well, what's interesting is this: this feels like the natural extension of this. This feels like what we've been building towards, right? This, this is the four-two-three-one that clearly services United's best players in the best way. And actually, what what hasn't been working is the kind of specific execution. Like some of United's best players, the players whose job it is to do the damage have not been doing the damage. And I think that's partly actually is Van Gaal's fault. That's partly to do with the number of systems he's played. But I'd be surprised if we see a dramatic formation shift between now and the end of the season. And I think if you look at the style of play in our last three or four games, except for the kind of switch to plan B when it's not working, which is very depressing to to watch. But apart from that, 
the style of play has been established and stuck to. Well, Fellaini's starting all the games, so I'm not sure that Plan B isn't Plan A. But there's no hoof. They're, they're not. They're not hoofing the ball up to Fellaini in the early parts of the games. Sixty long balls against Newcastle, so um, Fellaini was subbed off early. So I'm not sure that's entirely true. Um, you know, it's definitely a tactic, and I, I think it's uh, it's both a tactic and it also uh, reduces United's you know poorer distributors of the ball to you know a simple equation when there isn't another option because there isn't always great movement in front of them um they go long and i think this is this is an established pattern now from united so i i think uh, unfortunately it's it's just a bit of percentage football now and again he is trying to compensate for stuff but if you tell me that uh, united are somehow playing some sexy football and it's very clear what the pattern is i'm just not buying that at all or not there's a significant percentage of United's balls do go long to Fellaini they use him uh, in you know this kind of physical way to uh, either retain possession high up the field so it's basically rugby tactics that is because it's territorial or they use him to get knocked down some diagonal balls uh, that's basically Wimbledon circa 1980 and they keep a lot of possession but it's not in the final third you know it's all across the centre of the park and um, one need only look at the heat map you know, to understand that from the Newcastle game, sidewards, 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 right? Um, and so, um, and, and that's a separate point to this one about you know whether there's a strategy. I, I can't buy that there's a strategy either because uh, it changes from week to week. Uh, you know, if you have a strategy, you execute on it, and I think he's just tinkering around the edges. Doesn't mean I've lost faith in him. Uh, I, you know, his record says that it's going to come good, but um, at the moment he's going from week to week and making so many changes, just trying to find the answer. I mean, I kind of, I feel like that that's accurate up to a point, but then the team's been pretty settled the last few weeks. There's not been there's not been dramatic shifts in personnel. There's been a few a few positional a few positions where players have changed around, but rarely has between from game to game he hasn't made major tactical shifts it's not like it's been and I'm I'm talking about the last is it three games Sunderland Newcastle and Arsenal the 4-2-3-1 came out against Swansea it was a diamond yeah uh, so that's about the length of time that he establishes a system right United just got beaten by Arsenal so he'll probably go to three at the back against Spurs Sorry, that sounds cynical, but it's kind of true. It's not though. If they, I tell you what, if I was a gambling man, I would bet my house on us not playing three at the back against Spurs. I, I just think it's, yeah, I don't know, I, yeah. I just think that's, I just think that's that's such that's like a caricature of what's been happening rather than actually what's been happening, you know. Except it's what's been happening because he plays three or four games in one system and shifts to another one. So, well, we'll see. Maybe maybe we'll go with a 4-2-3-1. Uh, I'm not sure I'd bet my house on it. That seems like a rather foolish gamble given the, the pattern of system changes this season. I kind of don't care about any of the other points in the arguments I'm making. I don't feel certain about any of them. The one thing I'm absolutely adamant about is that Van Gaal is not setting United up to play hoofball. I think that that they clearly have that as an option when Fellaini's playing in particular, but that is absolutely not the first option that Van Gaal's looking for, that, that he doesn't just want United to be hoofing up to the big man. And as he was at great pains to point out himself, lots and lots of United's long passes, which is anything over 25 yards, right, gets counted as a long pass, is 
going sideways rather than forwards, which is about switching play, not about hoofing it up to the big fella and hoping for knockdowns. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that. Let's let's go for the nuance, talk about the nuance debate around those long balls, shall we? Because actually what Van Hal said is that it's distributed into the corner, not long sideways, uh, and that's playing into space and channels. And, uh, you know, Cambridge and Wimbledon used to do that years ago. I mean, that's pretty pretty obvious and basic tactic to play for territory, that is. Against Sunderland, Blint and Herrera made more passes than the entire Sunderland team put together. You don't do that playing hoofball. Against Newcastle, they were all in the kind of upper 70s region of passes United's midfielders. Like, you don't do that playing hoofball. It's like there are long balls thrown into the mix, but United are just making such ridiculous numbers of passes in these games that the long ball numbers look big too you know I just don't see it and it's definitely been the thing we've reverted to late in games when Fellaini's up top and that's easily my least favourite thing about this season like the sooner we ship Fellaini out out, the happier I'll be it's got to a point where I don't care if he's scoring last minute winners I just never want to see him play for United again because he's just not good enough and he's not United enough whatever the heck that means but like seeing him just trample other midfielders and kill the momentum of the game when we're starting to build things is it's just absolutely maddening and the fact that Van Gaal started him against Arsenal was just it's a total shambles but anyway yeah he doesn't want to play hoofball but he uh, yeah he plays the guy who ensures that United do play hoofball at number 10 uh, I have to say it's pretty it's pretty sad you know because there's there's only one reason for that right and that that is to retain ball uh, in the final third, predominantly when he's playing at number 10, they get it long to him and he holds it there. And he's very good when he hits his chest, of course. You know, he's got the best chest control in the world. Uh, I'm not sure that's the kind of requirement for Manchester United number 10, but, you know, hey, maybe it is. So, on to the Arsenal game then. Yeah, that, that game went exactly as I expected it to, sadly. We have become Arsenal. Loads and loads of possession, loads of short passes. Well, yeah, loads of possession. Yeah, 56% possession in the first half, loads of short passes, uh, and then we started hoofing it. <laughs> the worst moment in that game for me, apart from obviously like Danny Welbeck celebrating like he just won the World Cup, uh, scoring against us. But no, the uh, the moment when the avatar, not the advertising board, the subs board went up at half time. I guess the sure the sure substitution made sense because. Just come back from sort of fatigue, injury or whatever. But seeing Carrot come on for Herrera was one of the most depressing things in the world. At that point, I was like, this is over. We're just not going to win this game now. Because to say that, I think somebody described it as a like-for-like substitution. It's like, that's the least like-for-like substitution of two players that play ostensibly the same position. And, and from the moment Carrot came on, United's midfield and attack were just miles apart from each other. Cause, uh yeah. Well, it had two effects, and you know, it's not. I don't think that's a commentary about Michael Carrick's value. Uh, I, it, it had two effects. So Van Hal's worried about the potential for United being overrun in midfield, uh, basically because um, uh, Dan, Daly Blint is even slower than Michael Carrick, uh, and it, this is you know very pretty. And maybe you should like you know wander around the pitch with a mirror or something because he, he's definitely not going fast, like concentrating on the football. So. Um, and it's always been my criticism of him. He's just too easy to run past. Um, and that's a real problem when you're playing in that position. So he, he, you know, there's, there's clearly a concern that he's getting overrun. So Carrick has gone in there to bolster the defensive side of United's play. But unfortunately, it just shifted all the momentum to Arsenal. 
United were very, very deep, left this big hole uh, in which uh, Marouane Fellaini filled, you know, so a Herrera-shaped hole because he was the only player breaking ahead of the ball out of Blint and Herrera from central midfield and, and United was just tempted to then hit it long into that space, and which is what happened. So Arsenal started then gaining much more of a foothold into the game and United were uh, passing it sideways in the, the defensive third of midfield and then banging it long to Fellaini. Such a pity because you know, when you think about how many chances actually United actually managed to create with that? It was very few. Yeah, I mean the the first half was was one of United's best first halves this season, and the goal, the Di Maria Taruni goal, that's basically in microcosm this kind of the season I imagined we were going to have. <laughs> like that's that's what you think you're going to get. That's such a gorgeous cross from Di Maria, who certainly didn't. Uh, continue to contribute positively to the game and a beautiful beautiful flying header from Wayne Rooney uh, the goal we conceded just oh god the defensive Valencia at right back like it's such a terrible idea it's so he's so bad what's he doing there uh, yeah I mean he's he's willing and he uh, he gets rid of the ball at the right time he doesn't beat a man there was an interesting post by someone on the Red Cafe forum who uh who claims that uh, Van Hal doesn't like fullbacks who dribble with the ball? He likes to give uh, players a simple instruction. Now, no idea whether this is really true or not, but uh, this was the, this particular poster's thesis, um, and that you know, Van Hal's decision to play Valencia kind of fits into that. Maybe I mean, last time uh, Tony Valencia actually beat a man was in say 2011, wasn't it? No, it was like about six weeks ago, but I knew everyone nearly had a heart attack when it happened. Yeah, yeah, well, I think it was an accident. I think he actually <laughs> tripped over his own shoelaces. So uh, he's a terrible defender. He's a terrible defender. Yeah, he's in the wrong position constantly, uh, giving the ball away now as well. Doesn't help, and uh, he doesn't actually contribute that much to the attack. Um, uh, you know, Whereas we have a right-back, an actual right-back, who played a game and scored a screamer for the under-21s on uh, Tuesday night. He did. I can't help thinking that, much like some United fans, Van Gaal's just stuck in his 2010 opinion of Raphael. Like he, he managed Bayern in that game where Raphael made the biggest mistake he's ever made, and that's saying something in his United career. And uh, much like some United fans had their opinion of Raphael solidified that day, have never been able to shift from it. The idea that he's somehow kind of like this uber-rash defender who always makes loads of mistakes which kind of wasn't the case at all when he eventually got a run in the side and stayed injury-free. The problem with Raphael is you can't rely on him to stay injury-free. No, you can't. And uh, I bet, you know, conversely, you can rely on him to not make as many mistakes as he did when he was 18. You know, he clearly he matured as a player. Um, and I think it's a real pity that he's not in the side and clearly he has no future at United under Van Hull. It's a real shame. So, uh, I guess United will finally buy right back in the summer. Until then, we've got Tony Valencia gifting a goal away per game. Yeah, two, isn't it? That's because I'd, I'd say, like, the first one, Monreal, that's Valencia's man. I mean, the way the passage of play was, I'm not sure he was directly personally responsible for it, but he was certainly directly uh, personally responsible for the assist for Danny Welbeck. I'm sure that can't be Valencia's first assist for Danny Welbeck, but... Uh, that's not how they're supposed to go down, Tony. No, that's right. And then Welbeck uh, 
scored the goal, sprinted off to the corner, ripped off his shirt to unveil a up your bollocks, Paul, <laughs> and a T-shirt underneath. And, uh, yeah, celebrated like he'd always envisaged playing for Arsenal. Yeah, thanks thanks for that tweet, by the way, Ed. Really made me feel good at a, a really good, upbeat time in my life. Um, yeah, it was brutal. It was just so brutal. And let's, let's not forget that it, it, this was not Van Hal kicking Welbeck out. He was offered uh, an opportunity to stay at United as a third or fourth choice, as Van Hal very bluntly said, a substitute. More of a substitute than a first-team player. Um, and Welbeck had pushed for some time to leave. So, you know, I, look... Uh, there's one side of me that wants Welbeck to do well, of course, you know, and the the other side says he's not a United player anymore. He's dead to me, and <laughs> uh, and when he scores against us, he's the enemy. But the 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 thing about that game, I I, I kept trying to change my thinking around this particular subject, but I just kept looking at Marrow and Fellaini and thinking we'd be so much better if you were Danny Welbeck. Like I don't think Danny Welbeck should be our number one striker. It's you know that's probably not what should happen. But as a as a link up partner for Rooney, like he would have been exactly what United needed in that game and it was it was just brutal um to see to see it it go the other way uh Di Maria should have been an exciting player for United it's it's been very disappointing what's happened to him in the second two-thirds of the season so far and it reached its sort of uh pitiful whatever the bottom of a the opposite Nadir. of the climb Nadir that's the word it reached its Nadir in this game, uh, he was rolling around every time he was breathed on in a way that is just not acceptable for a Manchester United player. Like I, I know that's a ridiculous statement to make, but it's it's kind of true. You can't do the triple pirouette every time you get breathed on because he's just going to hurt his shoulder one day doing that. There's no need whatsoever. and He's never going to win the foul he's trying to win. He'll just get himself the booking for simulation and then... The te- his terrible assault on Michael Oliver. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it was a terrible assault, <laughs> but uh, but you, I guess you're not allowed to touch the referee. Aggressive attitude, apparently, is it? So he got the booking. He'll miss a game, but it was it was the kind of summary of a, a disastrous game altogether from Di Murray. He was completely ineffective, as you say, diving. I uh, got booking for diving and a booking for descent and uh, aggressive attitude. I mean, I thought it would be difficult to beat Chris Smalling's red card against Manchester City for brain-headed <laughs> dumbness. I mean, there's dumb and there's dumb. Yeah, at least Chris Smalling was actually trying to benefit the team. Yeah, no, I mean... Uh, I hope uh, Di Maria goes away and has a good, long, hard look at himself. In his, uh, he's, he's currently living at Phil Neville's house. Is he? The old Phil Neville's old house, yeah. Or he's renting Phil Neville's house. One, one of the two. Anyway, he moved out of his uh, his house after the uh, robbery. Uh, he'd moved into the, a suite at the Lowry for a while, and now he's renting Pip's house. Um, I wonder if he's going to accidentally highlight his hair, because like, Pip's got a, like, a highlighting room. He's such a rich footballer that he doesn't have to go to the barbers. He just like walks into a room and the highlights instantly appear. Yeah. Well, he certainly needs something. Maybe highlights for dirt, maybe a visit from the uh, the men in black. No, no. I think what's going to happen is he's going to take a good, long, hard phone call from his agent and move to Paris in the summer. I, I it's, It really has reached a point where I'd be slightly surprised if Di Maria is a United player at the beginning of next season. He just does not look like he's enjoying it at all, does he? So Laurent Blanc calls up and says, uh, here you go, United, 50 million quid for Di Maria. Yay or nay? <sighs> I mean... 
it depends on the player, really. If if the player doesn't want to be at United, then yay. If he sort of says, no, please let me prove myself, I can do it and I will do it, then yeah, definitely keep him because he's more valuable. The best version of Angel de Maria is much more valuable to United than 50 million more quid in the bank, isn't it? Well, that's right, yeah. Um, I'm not quite sure what the motivation to run off to Paris would be for except for a few extra euros, but he doesn't exactly need it. Um, and, of course, a place in the Champions League, which uh, which United are not guaranteed, despite that victory over Newcastle. As you said, really tough run of fixtures coming now. So Spurs at the weekend, followed by Liverpool, followed by Villa. Not so tough, but, you know, maybe they've had a little bit of a bump from Sherwood. Not that the results have gone their way. Well, they've got better in, in the last... He's won the last three games. So. And followed by City and Chelsea and a, a couple of other games and, and then Arsenal just before the end of the season. So, you know, it's the next five games, including that Villa one, that are, that are really crucial and make or break the season. And no doubt about it. And some of those results don't go United's way. Even if there's a bunch of draws in there, which is, of course, you know, highly likely, um, then United could be in a really difficult position uh, regards the Champions League. Uh, and there's not a lot to play for, you know. Not there's loads to play for, not a lot to play with. United, you know, have very little wiggle room here. Uh, it could be a real disaster. And I think one of the things um, about that Arsenal result, no matter what Wayne Rooney says about bouncing back, I haven't actually seen what he said that, but. I'm, thinking he probably said something about bouncing back is that will have a psychological effect i'm sure of that i'm sure of that it can't be anything but damaging van hal said beforehand that it wasn't just important for the fa cup it was important because united were in a rat race uh, and this was about confidence in that rat race absolutely i and that is a big blow the first half performance against arsenal though if we play like that every week we're probably going to be fine. It's just the chances of us playing like that every week seem fairly remote. I I think we are going to get a, a non-trivial number of points out of the games against Tottenham, Liverpool, Chelsea, City and Arsenal. I think we, we'll, we will get some decent results out of those fixtures. That That's, that's what I think, because I think we're quite well tailored to deal with some of the bigger sides. I think... I think we'd have beaten Arsenal if Arsene Wenger hadn't had the change of heart that he's had in recent weeks. A long, long, long time coming for them. But, you know, I think we'll do okay. I even think we might beat City at home, which is a bit of a ridiculous thing to think. But this that's that's how I currently feel about the the race for the top four before we uh, get into a heavy preview of the Tottenham game shall we uh, shall we take a few rank cast questions now let's do it okay at jaffo says who will be man of the match in the FA Cup final Danny Welbeck or TC23 oh man both in the FA Cup semi final i tell you what though welbeck i mean he's only scored eight goals for arsenal this season but he's actually pretty crucial to arsenal's sort of change in in tactics so the their decision to sit a little deeper and play on the break when away from home, very successful at City, successful at Old Trafford. He's pretty crucial to some of that. I mean, they don't have to play well back there, but he helps them stretch the play. He's great at running into the channels. Uh, he can hold the ball up, not not his greatest forte, but but definitely that pace and ability to run into the channels. Uh, pretty crucial to that tactic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, funnily enough, at Etna underscore UK, every team needs a run, uh, says, which one player that someone else bought this season do you think could have most helped us? And I can't help thinking it is Danny Welbeck. I wrote an article 
on the Bleacher Report before Welbeck left, saying that Welbeck could be Van Gaal's secret weapon this season. And I sort of still believe that could definitely have been the case. Um, but uh, no, uh, otherwise, I guess Nemanja Matic, that's not too far back. And uh, Alexis Sanchez as well was a player that I think United could have benefited from tremendously. Well, yeah, I mean, Sanchez always has great output uh, in terms of assists and goals, doesn't he? I mean, we bought Di Maria instead. So I think if Di Maria had had a good season, we wouldn't be... Uh, saying that, uh, Matic and Diego Costa definitely solved two massive problems for United, and and Fabregas, and the other one is uh, yeah, Fabregas. Uh, although you know we bought Herrera instead. I mean, I guess uh, Fabregas is is um, certainly killing it with the assists. Hasn't scored too many goals. Um, and the other one is a central defender. Although I'm not sure that any of my favourites, apart from Benatia uh, from Roma to Bayern, actually moved this summer. Uh, Hummel's certainly stayed where he is. Might be coming in the summers to come, if you believe certain rumours. But uh, yeah, those three, a physical midfielder, a central defender and a decent striker would have made a big difference to United this season. Absolutely. Okay, at Kononov, who's responsible for the wonderful Michael Owen Reed's mean tweets on the bifurcated Manchester United website, which is some of the best content on the internet. Um, Which four United players would you wish to see cast in the upcoming Ghostbusters movie? It's a really difficult question, this. Yeah, well, isn't it a ladies-only Ghostbusters? It is, but if you were going to cast Manchester United players as the Ghostbusters, I think you'd have to have... I think, like, Michael Carrick might be the Dan Aykroyd character, just sort of like quite enthusiastic, but just goes about his business, does the job. Nothing particularly unusual about him. I guess we could cast Angel Di Maria as Egon. That sort of makes slight sense. You can imagine being slightly awkward. And uh, and then maybe Juan Mata's probably the best fit for the Bill Murray role. Uh, vaguely. Sw- yeah, yeah. And, and obviously Anderson is the Michelin man. <laughs> oh, so outrageous. And then, yeah, Ashley Young as the, uh, the... The other one. The other one. That's how the Ghostbusters thing worked. Ernie Hudson was... It was, it was a, t- a terrible token gesture halfway through the movie. It's weird. It's weird. The politics of Ghostbusters. Anyway, yeah. I, I've um, been to the garage, of course. In um, oh yeah, in, in Tribeca, I've actually passed it several times because one of my uh, favourite Tribeca restaurants is uh, just around the corner. But I, I do remember the first time I took a photo of that, not realising it was the garage. Posted it on uh, on Facebook, and uh, you wrote, uh, "Who are you going to call?" And I was very confused for a second. <laughs> really? Because I just remember you sending me a text message. Maybe that was later in life. The next time you went bust that you sent me, uh, sent me it as a text message. I got very excited. At Shrikanth underscore Nima says, how important do you think the return of Michael Carrick could prove to be to the rest of the season? I think it's a mixed blessing, to be honest. Um, I, I think if he's used properly, could be vitally important. But if he's used instead of Herrera, it could be genuinely disastrous. Yeah. I mean, I, personally, I'd, I'd uh, ship Blint out and, and put Carrick in there. He's just a he's just a better form of Blint. I mean, he's no quicker, but he's definitely no slower, and he, he's just a bit more progressive with his passing. So, I think it would be an upgrade if Carrick and Herrera play in there as two. I'm not sure it's naturally Herrera's position box to box, but you know, he's he's got all the traits, hasn't he? He's he's kind of aggressive and uh, and progressive and runs ahead of the ball, and and I think. There could be a good balance with his character there. Not that we've seen it very often. Yeah, absolutely. Although I think Blint also does have some things that Carrick doesn't have, like uh, any tendency whatsoever to actually want to tackle a player, which, of course, Carrick 
Carrie not so fond of. But yeah, if you can't catch up with him, it doesn't really help that you want to tackle him. At Eddie Rose 13, this question I'm including because I could not think of a good answer. Excluding this season's signings and David De Gea, which player would you most want to hold on to for next season? So that's basically everyone that was there before Van Gaal rocked up. Uh, apart from David De Gea, who obviously we all want to keep, which one of them would you most want to keep ahead of next season? There aren't many left. Uh, no, there really aren't. Adnan Yanazai because of the potential. Juan Mata because he's just a beautiful player when he gets the opportunity, which isn't very often at the moment because they're big lump up front. God, what are we doing? What are we all doing with our lives? Marouan Fellaini's keeping Juan Mata out of the team. It's just stupid it shouldn't be like this yeah journalist rob smythe called it cultural vandalism yeah exactly and he's absolutely spot on it's like everything good and nice and exciting and fun about football versus marouane flipping fellaini and his elbows and his tripping over people and his general not being very good at football well, of course, he is actually very, very good at football in the relative global scale. But anyway, yes, um, it is what it is. We're just, we're just going to have to accept it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, this, this is one for you, I reckon, Ed. At T Bond thirty one says, "I'm traveling from Southern California to Manchester for the derby. What do I need to do in the city apart from attend the match?" Manchester, that is. Go to the Imperial War Museum. Go to the Lowry Gallery. Do a bit of shopping. Go to some bars in in. Piccadilly and around there and uh, enjoy the nightlife. Yeah. Go to the Northern Quarter. There's great stuff. There's uh, there's loads of great stuff to do in Manchester. Manchester is an awesome, awesome city. There you go. So, so are parts of Southern California, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, go to the Manchester United Museum. It's a bit, oh, Manchester United are great in, the, in that kind of corporate sense, but it's worth a visit for sure. When it comes to a museum... Yeah. You'd kind of expect that, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Alwyn Payne says, do you ever get angry at hot sauce because you think it's going to be sauce that is hot rather than sauce that is spicy? No, and uh, I'm quite an aficionado about hot sauce as well. Spicy hot sauce, that is. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've got uh, many varieties. All right, what's your favourite hot sauce and how hot do you like your hot sauce? Well... I don't know if this is my favourite, but it's one of my favourite hot sauce-related moments. <laughs> uh, oh, hold on, I just need to email the Bleacher Report. I've got a pitch for them. <laughs> ten, top ten hot sauce-related moments. Yeah, so I went to a, a, a chilli festival with uh, Miss Rant and uh, had, had a bit of um, ghost pepper hot sauce, ghost pepper being not the hottest pepper in the world, but, you know, very high on the Scoville scale, which is, you know, your measurement of hotness of a chilli. Uh, and a little dip, uh, had a taste, it was very nice, fruity as well as, you know, blowing your head off hot. Said said to the missus, why don't you try some of that? She got a uh, she got a little chip, like a Dorito, took a massive chunk of it, thinking it's just a sauce, bit and swallowed, and then was in tears for a couple of hours afterwards. And so was I, with laughter. So your favourite hot sauce related moment is your wife being in terrible pain for two hours? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, ladies he's taken at kev underscore cts do we think lvg's arch pragmatism will evolve into something more assertive once he has a defense slash midfield he can trust slash attack what, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so when he has all the players slash he wants to, team. yeah yeah uh yeah well look um history says yes history says that he'll produce a more attacking version of the possession-based football that united played at times um, during the first half against Arsenal. so But that's it, history. 
right? Well, I, I you see, I think also a little bit this season, but Ed thinks just history, which is fair enough as far as I'm concerned. But Do I, you know why that is? It's because you've got some blinkers on, so all the duff stuff you don't appear to see. No, I see it and it's terrible, but what I'm seeing, saying is that, that they're, <laughs> when it's worked, United this season have actually played a kind of functional and effective and fairly attractive attacking football, but that's been like, and, and possession based football, but that's been for approximately one third of the total football and that's probably been a bit generous. But I feel like that is what is being moved towards. I very, very much enjoyed your piece about the fundamental nature of modernism and the concept of progress, by the way. And it's interesting that you quoted a bunch of sociological theories, because I've been thinking a lot about how there's a really interesting sociological study to be done in the United fans as a collective's response to massive a massive cultural shift, because... That even when the possession football is in inverted commas working, and we're certainly not hoofing it up to Fellaini, there's a great deal of impatience about the fact that we're playing patient build-up play. I remember when Capello took over the England job and uh, there was just a passage of play at Wembley where England were just knocking it about and kind of passed it back and were just kind of retaining possession for a bit. And all the Wembley crowd got really tetchy. And it happens at Old Trafford when, you know, you get the attack, attack, attack chance when actually what's happening is they're United are trying to be patient in their build-up play. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that, and I'm actually not critical of that part. So what what you can be critical of is the fact that there's no change of pace, right? So, you know, the difference between a Barcelona side, which, by the way, took a lot of criticism for playing that kind of possession football all the time, is that they had that explosive change where um, Messi and and uh, Iniesta and others and Pedro and, and so on could you know, explode into action in the final third. You know, I don't have that at the moment, so it's all one paced. Except when the other team has the ball. <laughs> it's fun being a United fan at the moment, isn't it? Um, all right, talking of the other team having the ball, uh, the other team at the weekend are a team that played some pretty lovely football this season, especially uh, when Christian Eriksen or Harry Kane have had the ball. Um, I've really enjoyed watching the emergence of Harry Kane. It's the, the feel-good story of the season from a neutral point of view 1930s cheeky chappy harry kane <laughs> yeah exactly that bit where he just walks off going gotta love a north london derby except he doesn't talk like this got to have a got to love a north london derby i know i know it's it, it is rather depressing that he's on helium because you really you really do want him to have a, a proper cockney accent don't you but um like he's had a great season how many guys has he got now 26 something like that about I think it's 300. I wouldn't swear to it, but I think it's about 300. Yeah, which was about the annual goal-scoring rate of Radamel Falcao before he came utterly rubbish. <laughs> I just don't want to talk about it. Uh, he did really poorly for the reserves. Radamel Falcao turning out for the United. And Victor Valdez, they both played for the United Reserves because everything that we know in the world is finished and the world started again from scratch when Fergie retired. Yeah, he, he did. So Falcao, Valdez... Uh, Raphael, I mentioned, scored a, a great goal. Wilson also uh, played with the reserves. I, it was actually a very strong reserve side, which would have given the first team a decent game, although didn't manage to give Spurs under-21s much of a game. Uh, <laughs> ended up 1-1. I don't know what's going on anymore. Um, but, yeah, I can't shake the feeling that we're going to beat Spurs at home. I don't, I don't know what... 
It's not just optimism. I'm convinced it's not just optimism because I was as I thought we were going to not beat Newcastle and I thought we were going to not beat Arsenal. I, I feel like we're going to actually put some sort of performance together against Spurs and, and make it more telling than we managed to against Arsenal. The thing about Spurs this season is they have uh, what Van Hull might call balance. Uh, they have a very balanced side and a settled formation now. Play four two three one Ericsson. Is at the centre of all the good stuff they do. They seem to have found some consistency in wide areas. Mason and Bentaleb have uh, seemed to have formed a decent partnership in midfield when they both play. You know, great find in Mason. People kind of forget him you know, with the emergence of Harry Kane, another one through the youth ranks at Spurs. Uh, Eric Dyer's coming to central defence and done very well. A great consistency with Laurie. So there's there's no real surprise they're challenging. Um, at the top of, uh, you know, challenging for a European place, uh, is it? You know, they've got a very decent side. They play some decent football. They've got a good manager who understands how to get the best out of what is a squad that should be around, you know, around the European places-ish. Yeah, I think it's interesting because they had that massive transition at the beginning of last season and sold bail and bought in all those other different players. And you can see the importance of patience in football. I mean, maybe it's to do with the fact that the manager's changed. I'm sure that's hugely influential on it. But also I think it's just the fact that they've had they've had a season and a half and they're bedding in and they're a team now. Um, Ericsson's definitely come come really good, hasn't he? Uh, I don't know how many of the rest of them have. And then they've they've got these brilliant youth team players. So yeah, they're 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 doing they're doing terrific, aren't they? Lovely little club. Doing terrific. And they are, but they they score goals as well, you know. They've got goals from midfield, Chadley and uh, Ericsson both got sort of round ten goals each, haven't they? And um uh, Harry Kane's got all those goals uh, all over the place. They you know Danny Rose they found an attacking left back uh, Kyle Walker, when he's fit, is a, a very high-quality right-back. I mean, they've just got a very nice team. Now, you know, I'm not saying that, that they're a team that's definitely going to qualify for the Champions League because there are some weaknesses in there, but they've got a team that can certainly cause United trouble. The only thing I'd say is that United really do struggle against pace, right? So runners from midfield and, you know, in Ericsson and Chadley, they don't necessarily have loads of pace. Townsend, if he plays, maybe, but he's not He's not actually been the most consistent of their midfielders, I think. And then Harry Kane, not super quick. He's decent, but not super quick by any means. So um, I think where United are weakest, Spurs are not the strongest, but there's plenty of goals in that team, uh, nevertheless. First of all, please refer to him by his full name, Broadway Danny Rose, thank you. Secondly, I totally agree about that, the the match of strengths and weaknesses. The one thing about Spurs this season is that they've been very, almost United-esque in, in the kind of never-say-die spirit. Loads and loads and loads of late goals. Lots of uh, analysts put that down to uh, Pochettino's training methods as well. Gets the team super, super fit. It's kind of interesting. Little side note about that because that's you could say that about Van Gaal as well. We've we've definitely generally not stopped trying and not stopped being reasonably effective and late into games. Right, yeah, that's true. Um, one thing in Spurs' favour: no midweek game this week. Um, out of the UEFA Cup, although it wouldn't have been uh, this week, is it? Or well, what do they call it these days? Europa Cup. I can't help myself. The Intercity Fairs Cup. Um, Spurs were in through the group games and then got knocked out by Fiorentina so an advantage there they won't have loads and loads of games in midweek as they chase their Champions League place and, and aside from that 
that uh, Europa League exit, they've they've had a pretty decent run of games. I mean, one one at one at QPR beat Swansea. I'd lost to Chelsea well in the League Cup final. Sorry, uh, against Chelsea, they always lose to Chelsea, don't they? Except, except when they beat them five three. Except when they six yeah, weeks yeah. Ago. That, that, apart from that one, oh, apart from yeah. that one. But it had some decent results. Beat Arsenal, of course, in the um, in the North London derby. And you know they they you figure that what three points behind United, point behind Liverpool, four behind Arsenal. They're going to be in the mix for the Champions League. Absolutely. I mean, it is a four way fight for sure. And well, it's definitely a three way fight for fourth place. Right, us, Liverpool, Tottenham then you'd th- it depends on how successful Arsenal are between now and the end of the season, whether they get dragged into that, because they're, they're only a point ahead of us. But They are. They, they don't have the same kind of running as United, but this is traditionally where their squad falls apart, and it is still quite thin. Kind of. It's kind of when their squad falls apart, unless they started really badly, in which case it's when they do enough to get Champions League football, and I think that's that's the cycle they're on this season. And Liverpool, like Liverpool, are in scary good form, and I hopefully, well, we'll talk about that a lot more next week, of course, because we'll be previewing the Liverpool game that's then coming up. This game against this, this is a, this is bordering on proper six point must win already. Because if that if Tottenham beat us, we're still ahead of them, but they're level with us on points. Liverpool, I guess, are likely to go above us this weekend if we lose to Tottenham. It's uh, it's really, really, really serious stuff now. Don't cast Southampton out, only the point behind Tottenham. I mean, after Tottenham play us, they play Leicester, Burnley and Villa, right? So they've got a nice run there. Uh, if they get anything out of Old Trafford, then you're going to say they're right in the mix. Uh, right in the mix. Five-way fight, not quite as tight as the top of the championship, where 18 teams are all on 66 points, <laughs> but, but really tight. I mean, I don't remember a five-way fight for the Champions League places uh, any time in recent seasons no and it's actually not even impossible that man city will be dragged back down into it if they really continue their bizarre collapse um although that's a long shot two defeats on the in, in a row and they're back yeah the, the pack is chasing them again that's it we're, we're chasing second place paul come on united um so uh i guess that pretty much wraps it up for the show right anything else you wanted to cover this week ed just want to talk about fergie's new book what well Fer- fergie has a new book he can't stop the man's obsessed he is he is he's writing a management book in, in which he's going to lay out his uh, theses of good management practice uh in trade low one 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 trip to harvard and suddenly thinks he's some kind of management guru clayton christiansen get out you go fergie's in i i never really thought he was a he was um you know a philosophical manager that he had a pattern to anything i always thought it was instinctual with fergie but apparently not he's going to get it down on paper skip the chapter on succession planning that's my advice yeah yeah, rather rather dodgy article in the the Guardian this week, trying to compare Chelsea's succession planning when Mourinho went first time round with the Uniteds after Ferguson went. Uh, kind of nonsense, since uh, Chelsea have actually won one league title in seven years since Mourinho <laughs> went first time round. But hey, you know, good try and all that. Also, there was no succession planning. It just sat Mourinho because they had a fight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is what you can do when you're a billionaire. When when I'm a billionaire, you know, because it's inevitable, I'm going to buy a football club and just play with them for fun. I think it's going to be called Manchester City. No. no. <laughs> I think the thing about Fergie's book on leadership is, it, joking aside, it's kind of interesting. And, and I wonder how much of it's retrospective for him. I wonder it, how much of it is him thinking about it after the fact, uh, having operated on instinct for a long time. But then I think also it's probably a bit of a reduction of his 
intellect to assume that he's been operating on instinct successfully for all that length of time. I think I think he probably trusts his instinct at key moments, for better or worse. But he definitely had a plan. He definitely had a way of doing things, and and it was just ridiculously successful. And we're seeing the extent of how successful it was. All too clearly, aren't we? So I, I'll be interested in, in reading that if it's well written. I'm, well, I'm sure it's, it's written in collaboration with Michael Moritz, who's um, the finest Welsh venture capitalist there has ever been, if, if such a thing exists as a group of people so, uh, from Sequoia Capital. So um, I'm sure it'll be a very interesting read, uh, no doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. So predictions for the Tottenham game then, Ed? I think United are going to draw 1-1. I think we're going to win 2-1. And uh, this week, we always play a play-out track at the end of the week. Normally, it's something thematically related to uh, the show, however tangentially, or upcoming fixtures or whatever. Or some, sometimes we spend 25 minutes after the show has finished recording trying to decide what on earth we could possibly somehow sketch together that links to the show. And then you choose Phil Collins. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry about that, everyone. Uh, by the way, Tom, I never meant the 12-minute version of that Phil Collins track. But hey, Phil Collins fans amongst you got an extra special treat that week. This week we have an actual proper extra special treat. Uh, Old-school Rankcast listeners will know that whenever Oate releases a new single... As the official joint first fan of the rank cast ever, he has lifelong privileges that we'll, we'll play his uh, single as the play out track uh, every week. So if you like good hip hop music, stay tuned for that because uh, it is another absolutely amazing track from Moate with Turkish on the beats. Yeah, the boy's very, very talented and loves Paul Skulls uh, like there's no tomorrow. So yeah, stay tuned and listen to that. However, before all that, the usual spiel. If you want to get me on Twitter, you can get me at UTD Rantcast. If you want to get Edge, you can get him at United Rant. You can get both of us at facebook.com slash United Rant. Read what Ed has to say on unitedrant.co.uk. A brilliant piece about Van Gaal this week. Uh, you can read what I've got to say on the Bleacher Report. I wrote something on Ryan Giggs's goal uh, against Arsenal, which is a good read. And uh, if you want to uh, contribute to the show because uh, you like it and want to say thanks, unitedrant.co.uk slash donate. But just tweeting thanks at us will do the job too. Uh, so thank you very much for listening. Subscribe in iTunes and whatever podcatching software you would like to if you'd like to get the show automatically. It magically appears in your inbox when it's ready. You won't miss out. Absolutely. All your friends listen. Don't forget it. No, it's true. And if they don't, do something about that. Unless they don't support United, in which case I think it would be probably cruel to try and get them to listen. So, All right, that'll do, won't it? Will do. Uh, we'll see you next week after United's miserable 1-1 draw with Spurs. Come on, United!